This episode of Future Construct is supported by Applied Software. We would like to thank them so much for supporting us. Uh, Applied Software is really on a mission to transform industries. They empower their clients and champion innovation with real world expert consultants. So to reach them, you go to asti.com, that's A-S-T-I.com, and please tell them that we at Future Construct and BIM Designs sent you. Thanks so much. Hi, welcome to the Future Construct podcast. I'm your host, Amy Peck. Today we have a guest who I have known for actually a very long time, uh, Hugh Seaton, who is the head of product for Crosswalk by CSI. Welcome, Hugh. Thanks for having me. So you've had such a long and and interesting career. We met uh, several years back, um, you know, really around the the sort of VR and immersive technology space, but you've had a a much broader kind of career history. I'd love for you to kind of walk us through, you know, your your meandering path to where you are today. Yeah, so I, I, um, I grew up in the 80s with my dad going to Asia a lot and I got all the airport gifts and watched the Karate Kid and all the Americans was kind of discovering um, bits of Asian culture. So I was kind of enthralled and um, started my career in Southern Taiwan, having studied some Japanese not so well and Chinese a little more successfully um, and spent about four years in, in, uh, in Taiwan and Hong Kong. So I was in Taiwan when it became a democracy and I was in Hong Kong when it went back to China. So interesting times. Um, came back to the U.S., spent a bunch of years in advertising, both on the client side and, and, uh, and uh, on the agency side, always for technology. Though. So kind of a thread that runs through it all is always an interest in technology in terms of how, how it connects with people, why people care about it, um, and how to make it better. I, I, I jokingly tell the story that I was one of the marketing managers for Walkman when the iPod came out which was a lesson if ever there was one, both in, in terms of UX and the importance of really good product management, um, but also in humility. <laughs> like we had real money and we had a great organization around us and we got clobbered, which was interesting. Um, so then I spent some more years in China and I spent and I came back in 2012 and have been doing a lot in, um, in starting up my own company that focused on, on e-learning. And we started with some mobile then moved to some AI, specifically voice, and built some things with VR and AR, which is how we met. And along the way, we, you know, we did a couple of shows at Javits, which was crazy. Uh, I think, in fact, I think you spoke at both of them. Um, and then, you know, sold that company, worked at the acquirer of the Glimpse Group for a little while, for about two years, and then uh, started with, with um, and along the way, helped create the AEC Hackathon. I think you had Damon on this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Damon's a great friend of mine, and he, he, uh, he actually founded it. He, another friend, Paul Doherty called me in 2012 and said, hey, we're going to do a hackathon. I said, that sounds awesome. What's a hackathon? <laughs> and thus began my AEC um, career. I mean, before that, Paul and I had worked on some BIM um, projects, primarily me doing websites and marketing for him. And he was working in China doing BIM with an Indian company, because obviously, um, I'm joking. It was, a, it was a, a guy from Queens taking Indian BIM uh, services into Shanghai, like, you know, I guess Antarctica was busy for that story. Um, so, so since then, you know, I'm really excited about where I'm now. We're kind of looking at a lot of the old lessons about, about technology and about users and how to make things connect with people are coming together with this crosswalk product. I don't want to get too into it, but it, it really is a, a connection, a, a way to connect data across 
construction phases, which is fun. And and so I can we talk a little bit about Aquinas because you know I was always struck by how not only with your vision around how valuable you know immersive technology could be around um, learning, but then the data around it and all of the research that you did and and what were some of the outcomes and how do you think that kind of informs your career today? So Aquinas is the company that I founded that was sort of e-learning that we sold in the glimpse um, just for context. It, um, so it's interesting. There's a lot behind what you're asking in terms of, of what what we learned. I learned a couple, I learned more about how people do and don't learn um, and, and how to think about uh, supporting people's learning. Um, so, you know, XR, you know, we often split it into VR and AR. So you think about immersive, um, immersive learning, but also immersive support. So VR is really good for training, classic, take people out of the flow of work, show them how to do something. In the case of VR, they can actually do the thing. So at Glimpse, we did a bunch of that stuff. But at, at, uh, um, at Aquinas, we did, we did, we started it, and that was the whole reason why I went to Glimpse. So between those two, we spent a lot of time figuring out how do we make effective, but how do, effective training courses that are better than just a, a very narrow one-off app, for lack of a better word. Um, the other side of it, which is possibly more relevant to the future of construction for sure, is, is AR. Because with AR, you can, yes, there's some training to it, but much more importantly, there's immediate just-in-time information, which we often will call performance support. Um, in terms of data, I spent a lot of time on um, this syntax called XAPI that maybe was something that you, we, we talked about in the past. It, it's, you know, it, it's something that the learning industry has, has really taken to. It isn't that mysterious. It's just trying to set a standard. Now, since I work at a place that does standards for a living, I obviously think it's a good idea. <laughs> the goal there though, was to really start to say, how can we marry training data to performance data outside in, in, in the world and see if we can correlate the two? Because you know, everyone's got an ROI problem and learning, especially e-learning has a really big ROI problem. And they were trying to say, if we can correlate um, results in a, in a training environment to how someone performs, you can start to show that it's worth doing. Yeah, I think also, you know, some of your expertise around AI and, you know, I think I think it was one of the challenges is that the kind of data that you're that you're pulling out of these virtual environments is much bigger, um, much more kind of disparate than the type of data you normally would push through any kind of an LMS system today and then sort of linking those two together and then putting AI layers behind it to, to really kind of assess efficacy and kind of building that efficacy loop on the learnings. And I and it's interesting. I do I do see a lot of parallel, and it's funny because I because I you know I look at your career and, and it is a circuitous journey, but it but it all makes sense, right? Every little piece of it sort of leads up to where you are today. And you know, depending on who you talk to, the construction industry is either you know incredibly you know you know far ahead in terms of their embracing technology, and then others are like, no, Luddites, we can't. <laughs> like it's so hard to introduce new technology in. And I think the truth sort of falls somewhere in the middle, but I'm curious, you know, in your experience now, what, what you're seeing and, and how you think we can bridge the gap, because there's always, we still have a, a ways to go no matter what. Yeah, I think there, there isn't an answer to whether it's Luddite or forward thinking is 730,000 companies and 8 million people. So I think you, you wouldn't say that about, you wouldn't characterize the car industry as 
kind of with big with one or two numbers except for the size of them. And I think that we need to start doing that with construction is that there are segments of the market that are that are world class companies that are that are out there doing all sorts of innovation. Um, there's about 150, according to BLS, there's about 150 that are over 1,000 people out of 700,000. There's an awful lot of two-person firms where it's, you know, a, you know somebody and, and their brother with a welding, you know what I mean, or that just have a truck. Where the economics of it doesn't even make sense. I, I mean, yeah, and, and not just economics, it's this, they, they're in demand, so they're, they care about getting the next job, they care about risk, they care about getting their, their uh, holdbacks, I mean, they've got so many things to worry about that are existential. They're not too concerned about, about working more efficiently as a team. But, but I think my point in saying that is um, when people will talk about how, how slow construction can be to, to adopt something, I would point to drones. People, it took a minute, but it didn't take that long before people said, oh, I see how this works. And now they're among the most effective users of drones in the private sector because it was immediately useful. I think the, the issue is it, it is one of those industries where you can pretty immediately see if it's working or not, or if it's valuable or not. So, and, and people aren't gonna give it time to sink in and to learn too much new. Um, so I, I think it's a little bit of a learning culture that is not as prevalent as it could be. And what, you, what, I, what you're seeing is some of these world-class companies, their innovation teams often really overlap with HR and the, uh, the learning and development group, where they're doing hackathons and they're doing contests all to get people to break out of how they used to do things. It's not that the hackathons are gonna deliver some fantastic solution. It means that you've got people that don't think like this and more to the point, because of the risk averse culture of construction have been taught their entire career to really toe the line and do things as you're told. And now you're saying, no, no, I, I want you to look at things a different way. And that's a new skill. And it, it's, you know, you're seeing, as I say, people really making an effort to train their groups train their, their staff to be more, um, more open to innovation. And it's a process, like anything else. I would like to thank the team at Applied Software for supporting this episode of the Future Construct podcast. With solutions for really any modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering their clients and being the champions of innovation with real world expert consultants. They have a comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing with a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. So with software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered for all of your workflow needs. And BIM Designs is proud to be a client and partner of Applied Software. So you can reach them at asti.com, it's asti.com. And please let them know that we here at Future Construct and BIM Designs sent you. I, I do find it interesting because when you look at the construction industry, they already have, you know, fluency in sort of the 3D realm. So, you know, immersive technology makes perfect sense. You, know, you think of this uh, dream of, you know, AR glasses and being able, you know, to, to see BIM data, you know, just through, you know, basically see through walls. Uh, it seems like it's you know it's headed in the right direction. The technology is moving that way. Um, what do you think are some of the the drivers of adoption? Do you feel like that they, we still need to close the gaps? And it sounds like it's a lot about the product that you're working on right now, right? Is sort of wiring all of these sort of disparate systems together so it's easier to find, uh, you know, in any stage of the building life cycle, 
the information that you're looking for? And, and is it going to take that or are there just other elements at play or is it just the industry in the immersive industry in general that you think is sort of holding everything up? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that there are different things drive, uh, have been driving different kind of little mini waves of adoption. So we've seen through the Procores and primarily Procore to be honest, but but lots of, other, and you know, BIM 360 from Autodesk made some progress. You've got Trimble, you've got a number of folks that have digitized the paper process, or at least they're in the process of doing it. And that's what happened in, in offices and, and, and manufacturing in the 90s and a little bit in offices earlier than that. But the 90s were about digitizing the paper process of, of manufacturing, primarily because SAP came in and said, you'll do it this way and oh, you know, off we went. Um, I think that that process is, is very far along. And I, I'll be honest with you, people will say it's productivity that they that they buy the Procore for. And, and that's probably, of course, that's part of it. Another part of it, though, is real construction is often driven by winning or losing a change order dis dispute. And, it, and there's a, this, it's an industry that's full of disputes because people aren't, you're not around. And, and so this happened or that happened, that caused this, that caused that. Documentation usually wins. So by having accessible, auditable, um, documentation, people potentially can win more of those disputes, which has a big impact on, on relatively thin uh, profit margin. So I think that was, that's an example of one thing that, that I, I think drove a bunch of things that, that moved forward. Beyond that, you know, risk is still a, a big part of how construction thinks. So, and it, it, for, reason, for good reason. So I think it's, um, technologies that help to manage risk, help to quantify it, help to minimize it, I think you're going to keep seeing more of. Um, there's, some, there's some groups out there that are doing reality capture, both on a scanning perspective, but also just from 360. And again, that's enormous because it means I know I can go peel back the layers and see what happened five days ago or a month ago. That, that, the things that does in terms of workflow, I don't think we even know yet. I think that's different enough that workflows are going to shift a little bit. And I think that some things that have happened in society that made things a little bit more um, uh, a little bit more remote also mean that some of these technologies are going to uh, have an impact. Yeah, we've seen a lot of robotics with um, some some manner of scanning system on them for different use cases. Uh, you know, in these in these environments, and I think that's one aspect. And you know, I also see you know you talked about you know risk and and contract disputes and and so are, are you looking into you know smart contracts and how blockchain can kind of be wired in to this conversation where you're able to even remotely using you know immersive technology verify that work has been done and then that triggers either a next stage or a payment or whatever it happens to be within the contract or do you still think that that's just too far out I think the, the ecosystem to make that work is still being put together. And I don't mean specifically smart contract. The reality is blockchain at scale is still not so easy to deploy. It, it, it takes up a lot of compute and it's, it's not so easy. Although I know Ethereum is better, but it's still, I don't think it's all the way there. But more to the point, the rest of the ecosystem that you would need to make that, that kind of value chain you just described come together, I don't know that it's there yet. I think it'd be a bit of a hothouse flower. One of the problems that we have um, in construction is the innovation team brings something in, it, it goes well in the heavily you know, pushed pilot, and then it never goes anywhere. And good innovation teams are getting better and better at making that not happen, but that's a risk. 
And I think that if there are too many pieces that are still being worked out or are foreign to the, to the workflow, um, I think you're gonna have an issue with, with real adoption because the point of construction is the companies that have the money to, to invest in something like that are all over the place. They have, you know, they have different offices around the country and, and being, getting something really um, adopted across the company Take, means the company has to push it. You, there's no comp, there's no software vendor that can that can do that. The company itself really has to to, to you know be that geographically dispersed. I think there's there is a lot of promise with smart contracts. I think that that something has to the weak spot isn't isn't that the data needed is it itself is disputed. The weak spot is the thing that entered the data is disputed. If that makes sense. So that when I say that the ecosystem may not be there somebody has to put in there that the work is done and verify it. And it can't be the, the person, the, sub, the subcontractor doing it. So, cause you know, they could say anything. So, so I think that, that there's a, there, someone needs to wrap a product around what you just talked about. Cause it, it's, a, it's a, I think it's a very good insight and a very good idea, but someone's going to have to go and develop a product that's end to end doing what you, what you're talking about. And I promise you someone's trying. I just, Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, I no, no, see, I, I, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, it, it, I think the other challenge is too, once you start to, you know, and I'm a big proponent of, you know, the convergence of technologies. I've been yammering on about it for five years and that we have to start thinking more broadly about, you know, not just one technology solving one problem. However, in, in the immediate term, it, that's exactly what has to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm finding that the simplest solutions that solve a single problem using technology in the way that technology is ready for today, those are the ones that are actually making an impact in, in the market right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I look at a company like Schlumberger, they, they have just a, a very kind of simple bird's eye view layout plan when they're at a fracking site so that they know, and you know, you wouldn't even think of this, it's that simple, but it's like, just because all the equipment that they have to bring on in such a vast space has to fit in this specific area. And it's very hard to do from the ground. And so that's a great use of, of AR. Hmm. Um, but then you add, you know, layer upon layer and just like even the robotics company we had on uh, a few weeks ago, and they just have a robot that comes in, scans the environment, and then will actually mark where the, you know, the framing layout goes. And that's, it, again, simple solution um, to a very big problem. Uh, and so I think we're going to, I think we're a few years out from seeing those big combinations. I think I just like pushing the envelope and want all of this to, to happen faster. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, what you see with some of the things you just talked about, specifically the robots, it's a little like autonomous vehicles where, it looks, it works really well and it gets better in the beginning in a pretty linear way. And then you start getting closer to 90% accuracy and up and it gets nonlinear. And all of a sudden we thought we were a week or, uh, you know, a year or two away and we're not, we're a decade away because you need literally exponentially more, more data. I think the, the construction job site is worse than a road. You know, a road is already chaotic, but, but a, it's much worse than a road because it's constantly changing. You know, the, the ground is not as level. Um, things that are moving around are, are not as controlled as a, as a road might be. So I think robots on the job site are gonna be on rails for, for a while. Yeah. I think that, you know, you see that there's a couple of them that basically, have, like I said, they're on a track. So you're controlling some of the variability. I think there's enormous opportunity, even there, even saying, we're, right, we're not gonna have the thing walking around and you know, sharing Diet Cokes with us. What we're going to do is attach it to something like industrial robots had to do for 40 years. 
I, I think that you can get so much done, even so, with it, thinking of it as a stationary, even with, with caution tape around it. There's just enormous amounts of, of really repetitive stuff that I think you, we, robots can help with. And you're seeing that. I think it's just like, there's, I don't know who, I forgot who it was you had on, but you know, there's, there's a, a, a rebar tying robot, there's a, a drywall robot, there's a number of them. But again, you see that they're narrow use cases that are all about repetition and, um, and you know, they'll bring things like a precision that humans can't do, which might open up new opportunities in terms of performance of the building, in terms especially th thermal performance of the building. I mean, you're seeing that a little bit with, there's a company I talked to who did, who, um, who did connection engineering, and that's when two steel beams come together. How many, how many bolts and where do you put them? It used to be that they designed every one because you had armies of people that, that worked on big buildings and we don't anymore. This company automated that. The point was that they realized that because things that come out of a steel mill now are so much more precise than they were 40 years ago, a lot of the kind of received practice isn't relevant. Like that used to be that you just had exactly, the, it's not important what the, what the received practice was, but it assumed that you had a variability that you don't anymore. And yeah. I think when you start having robots on a job site, we'll start to discover some things that, that you just don't know beforehand. But when, when everything fits perfectly, when everything's exactly where it's supposed to be, and your tolerances are tighter and tighter, it'll be interesting to see what happens to buildings in terms of their performance and how quick and how well you can schedule their assembly. Yeah, and I think I think there are even things that with that with that data and with that amount of data throughout the entire construction lifecycle that will be able to make improvements that we're not even really thinking about today that that data is there and we're actually collecting every aspect of the build on site, you know, in real time that that building upon after you have, you know, a significant uh, uh, amount of data around all of that. What are some of the inferences we can make in other aspects, uh, you know, to to improve efficiency, you know, on those on those building sites? I think you're 100% right. I think there there still are some processes that are underway right now, and one of them is people people recognizing what data is for. There's a lot of. I mean, I did a couple of courses with Procore just because you know it was a slow week. I'm kidding, but it was, it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. And it was specifically around data, but my point, I'm not the only one. A, my point is there's a lot out there where people are saying, we want our, our, our folks on the ground to understand the value of data and what that does. Um, and I think the, the reason that's important is if you have every project manager having their teams enter data a different way, it's a lot less valuable because it's hard to aggregate without spending money on, on data scientists transforming it. So as that starts to become more and more standardized, I think a lot of the vision you just talked about becomes a lot more possible and powerful. And you're, you're definitely seeing that. You're seeing examples of, of general contractors where they'll spend 18 months in one case, going through each PM and getting them to enter things the same way. And now senior management has, a, has the ability not just to, to kind of manage, but they can start to say things like, what if we tried that? What if we tried that? So it, it goes from being better tracking to better resource allocation. Eventually, it gets to better process design, um, and that's really powerful. Yeah, yeah. So, what, so you started construction tech quarterly, and that was probably just a, a time constraint, and that's why it's not construction tech monthly. <laughs> Actually, no. I, I, that's a great question, and, and I, I there's a couple things. To be honest, I thought quarterly sounded cool. Um, <laughs> I, I 
you know what I mean? And like originally I had like times new Roman fonts and all those. It's, very, it's like very old timey. Like exactly it. right. Exactly right. If I could have put, <laughs> if I could have made my, my screen mahogany, I would have. Yeah. And you're, um, you're wearing tweed while you write it with the little, you know, suede elbow patches. That's it's right. Like that's right. Thing. Someone's got to smoke a pipe. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I had, I was just, I, so I published the book this year, the construction technology handbook. And I, I handed it off to the publisher in October. What was it? No, it was like September or something. And I was like, what am I, you know, I got to do something to build up excitement. And, you know, I, I was lucky that I'd worked with someone pretty amazing over the summer. And I asked her to go do basically a, a, a survey of the industry, get together as many uh, construction tech, specifically software companies as we could find. And we did some analysis. And then from that, I just got excited and did some more. Um, and some of the research that went into the book didn't make it into the book. So that kind of became the first quarterly. And, and the idea of the quarterly, the book is purposely, a, it's a book, right? So it can't be topical. It has to be conceptual. It has to be introducing people to ideas and, and you know, stand, it has to last at least a year or two. Um, the quarterly can be topical. It can be about what's happening now. It, to be honest with you, it's, we're not there right now. I'm, I've actually... The first one was was about was really breaking down the industry and saying how big is it really and, and no it's not 1.3 trillion to anyone that cares it may be to the BLS and the government but nobody is playing in a trillion dollar industry nobody you're playing in a 400 billion dollar industry because the other two thirds of that are too small to do anything with that's still pretty big 400 billion is enormous yeah. but it's it I wanted to break apart some of the some of the received ideas that people had and really look into it and say, you're gonna be talking to the top 150 differently than you're gonna be talking to the bottom 18,000 because they're different size companies and they behave differently. And if you wanna go after this market, you need to be realistic that the top 400 where everybody wants to go, the ENR 400, that's great, but so is everybody else, you know? And, and is that the only place you can go? Is there a way that you can go bigger than that? And, and find a way to sell to some of the companies that are like number 1000, not that anyone's collecting the numbers at that point, but you know, 400 million, $500 million companies that aren't quite on the list. Um, and I, I, hopefully that starts to get people thinking like that is, is to, to look at some of the numbers that we take for granted and maybe rethink them. I, you know, and so I, I'm always curious where, you know, and I think you think about this a lot, you know, what, what would you like to see happen to, to kind of, you know, be a real catalyst for this next evolution? And, you know, like, are, are there a couple of solutions that you've seen since you're looking at, at a lot of them that, that are kind of bubbling under that, you know, as you mentioned, it's like they're sort of here and they're just about to, to kind of take off? Um, I think, yeah, let me answer really that question. Industry. Yeah, let me answer that. Sorry to interrupt, but let me answer that question in, in two ways. Um, I think that there are some technologies that are absolutely already taking off and I think are going to just get bigger and more important. Reality capture is obviously is one of them. Um, I think that that uh, companies that are dealing with 3D information and 3D data, we're not even close to finished with that, that running its, its path. I think VR and AR are a piece of it, but you don't only need that. I think that, that BIM becoming um, more of a useful tool even more than it is now. Um, I think it just keeps getting better. It keeps getting more accessible. People find ways to make big models work on small machines like phones and stuff. So I think that the things that relate to space, um, whether it's reality capture modeling or even 360 imagery, um, I think LIDAR is just starting to be really important. And I think it's going to be more and more important. 
it's it's kind of funny if you remember when AR kit came out it was pretty underwhelming in terms of the apps it was like okay a couple things ikea did a thing i could see how big the couch is going to be in miami lidar oh my god like in, like immediately there were apps where you can model everything and you can do with this and do with that and you can import them export them and that's it's only been out for five months yeah so i think that it, we're just seeing what consumerized lidar scanning will mean and and it'll mean people get better at it and it'll mean the top end the professional end just gets more useful and more more prevalent. So I think there's some fun things happening there. The other half of the answer to your question, if you don't mind, I think that there's some enabling features of the industry that aren't really technical that are going to have an impact. The legal side of them is one. And, and by that, I mean, it's a litigious industry. So people overdo it with, with the legal side and they worry about risk, not because they understand the, the risk, of some things, they just say to themselves, "I don't want to. I don't want to get into it because I don't know what the risk is." So I think that there's a lot of room to to quantify risk. Of like, great example, if I'm an if I'm a mechanical contractor and I have a model of something that I scan, people are nervous about giving it to another trade because they're afraid about what liability that opens up. I think quantifying that and making clear to people that it's all right, you're not you're not like that would enormously open up how much people share with each other and, and work with each other. Uh, there's other things too. I think you know, for industrialized construction, which is another big thing that's that's taking off and will keep doing so. Financing of industrialized construction is absolutely out of whack right now. The banks don't understand it, and the construction companies are struggling to figure out how to get it financed. And you've had some pretty un, pretty not great things happen over the last year, where some companies that were doing really well had had funding pulled or had other things pulled from banks, not from VCs. So I think I think. Figuring that out is, is a, I'd like to see that happen. Yeah. So what do you think about the LIDAR question I find really interesting. And, you know, if you, it, it seems like it's, you know, it's built into our phones is, is so, uh, it, it's kind of incredible that to think about that we could actually just, you know, have this mat, actually build a mesh of our a persistent mesh as the AR cloud really starts to be, be fixed. Have a persistent mesh of our of our environments that you know will will be able to allow us to have all kinds of different you know AR experiences, but I, you know the real capability I do think is is in construction and being able to kind of build kind of quick uh, snapshots of an environment. Um, but is it is it is it kind of bubbling down to that level now, or do you still see these sort of the much more kind of high-end scanners and laser scans of these buildings, or is it yeah. really just a matter of what, it, you know, it depends on what it is. And because I think you did a study on what level of fidelity do you need for what use case? I think we, we talked about that a few years ago. Yeah, I know. I, it's so, so I, there's a guy that is on the, on the, the board of society of construction solutions in New York with me. And is he actually asked me to borrow my phone in like November, I couldn't because I wasn't here because so I got it from someone else. So he could go to a job site, use the LIDAR and, and with it, with the, the, I don't even know what app he was using because it does measurements. So in the past you're using machine vision and it, you couldn't use measurements, it wasn't good enough. I mean, it was, the photogrammetry was fine but it wasn't accurate to, to that level, LIDAR is. So to answer your question is, is this is, a, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's running, a, he's a consultant working with, with GCs and, but he, he wasn't taking a big, you know, a big Ferro scanner. He took his, took, he borrowed someone's phone, went there and did a scan. And that was good enough. That's really cool. You know, that, that, that to me says that, that it, it really is something that, that a superintendent could use, like, you know, boom, yeah. away you go. And with the right software, which you're finding a number of, of, of people that are doing that, 
you know, you can pull it in, clean it up, and now you've got it in, you know, an at 500 BIM. I mean, someone's going to clean it up a lot to be uh, LOD 500 BIM, but it's getting there quickly. Yeah, yeah, I find that really interesting, and I, I still believe that maybe there's there is this notion that there, there's an element of you know consumer tech that drives a lot of this adoption in the enterprise realm because a lot of it is just down to fluency, right? Everyone knows how to use their phone. So if you build a, a solution that is mobile first, maybe it maybe it works on wearables, maybe it works on your laptop, um, but that you know you have with you and you can take on a job site and do something that's useful very easily. T to me, that's that seems to be the one of the, the the most effective ways to kind of push some of these new concepts, even concepts and how to do things, you know, into, and, and they, they look at the education piece as well. It's a much shorter learning curve. I think you're totally right. And in fact, w when I was writing the book, I spoke with like 150 people, something like that. And uh, one of the first people was James Benham. I said, what do you think? And he, and he, he said a few things, but he got me on a really good path. He said, this all started with consumerization of tech. So, you know, the, the accounting groups, whether it was, and I'm not going to get into brand names, but tried to push things into the field. It didn't go so well. But as soon as people were able to do stuff on their phone, they started creating their own little apps. They started doing their own things. And I think it's exactly the insight you, you, you mentioned. And I think, you know, now it doesn't only have to come from there, but it absolutely had a huge impact. Before that, and you know, you're not really going to buy a laptop for everybody. So there was also, if it wasn't on mobile, it was an accessibility and and you know affordability issue. The superintendent might have a laptop because you know the Panasonic Toughbook or something. Um, but really, it, it once everybody had access to a lot of what the technology does on their phone, it really made a difference. So you're absolutely right, and I think that's you're right. That's going to keep happening when people have fun little lidar apps that that you know someone can play with with their their kids or their what their niece and nephew something. They're going to say, wow, I bet I could do that. I mean, what I'll often show people is on, a, on, on any modern phone, Google has those, you know, those AR animals, you know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah, Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can like if you Google dog in, in, in the Chrome browser, you can see a dog on there. And like, you know, it's just an easy way to show how, how AR is now in every device. So I think you're right. That's, and it's going to keep happening. And did you see, you mentioned the trades. Do you, see, uh, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a long process to become a journeyman or to, you know, to go through and, and, and be a part of the union. And do you see this type of technology being useful, A, in the education, and then educating to the technology becoming part of the curriculum for the unions in the future? Yes. Yeah, great question. I mean, unions are, 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 you know, they're worth it because the education you get from the unions that I know. So I, I happen to know the Chicago area better than I know other areas, just because of who I you know, met and so on. It's folks in Chicago, the MCAA of Chicago and, and the, the UA of Chicago, they have these amazing training um, facilities and they have VR in there, like a lot. And they'll go build like VR of a mechanical room or a welding. They have Revit kind of screens, it's hysterical. It looks like you're going into a Bond film with all the screens on the wall because they want their, their folks to really, really understand how to do BIM coordination and how to, how to work with BIM. Um, so so you're, I think you're absolutely right, is that, that organizations like unions are right now a really good way for people to learn, not just because they, they often will subsidize it to some degree, there are also, they're also people talking, they're, they're bridging the gap between all of the things that happen in the field and, and telling you why it's relevant. 
The problem often is, is it's a little too abstract and people have trouble connecting how that's gonna help me out there. But someone who's done both, played both roles, um, good friend of mine, Mike Zivanovich, is like that. He's, he's, you know, he'll tell stories about being in, you know, 19 degrees below zero. And he's like, you know, it, it was really 20 below, but they, they lied and they kept us out there. So <laughs> crazy stories about Chicago. So when he talks about why BIM will matter, he can relate it to how it's going to happen, how it's going to help real people in the field. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a good number of people in the trades that are, that are getting better and better at that. Yeah, and I, th I do think too that there's something to taking even some of the curriculum that you might be sharing in virtual environments, because I, as I understand it, it's it's pretty hard now to draw in this next generation of, you know, you know, craftspeople and builders and in, you know into the trades, and you know I think that there's the curriculum piece of it uh, for actual kind of hands-on learning, but then leveraging some of that content to sort of tell the story of what, what a, you know, a day in the life of an electrician is, or, you know, a framer, or whatever it happens to be, and, and hopefully tell that story so that we can entice that next generation. And if you had any, because you have such a, you know, broad history in, in, in sort of learning and education, do you see any of those trends or people trying to kind of bridge that gap between this next generation workforce? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that, that go on there. One is demographics are really, really not on our side. So we're right now, we are at the peak of a population pyramid. Like so that, and by that I mean the 20, 25 to 29 is the largest part of our population right now, which means that this is the moment to have gotten them into the trades and we have a 300,000 or so person um, deficit. So the trades are always going to have a, a, a shortage. It's, it's, it, there is no, there's no, I don't believe there's any silver bullet that's going to make up that kind of a gap when we're, at, we're now is the, the best possible moment and we still have a shortage. So I think that, that um, I do think that, I think the job is going to change. I think that offsite manufacturing makes it a little more enticing than being out in the, out in the weather for 12 hours a day or 10 hours a day. I think that people have options that maybe they didn't 40 years ago. Um, so, they, and they take those options sometimes. Um, so I, I think that education, absolutely. I think the idea that you can learn and there's another kind of aspect coming that relates to education. And that is, if you are a qualified pipe fitter or electrician, you also know usually things that relate to installation of data and media, especially electricians, but I think it's true across a couple of them. Where, where now you have an expertise and the ability to be a consultant as well as be somebody who's actually turning the wrench and, and putting work in place. And um, I'm seeing, you know, Josh Bone from, from the, the, the uh, NECA talks about this a lot, this idea of getting better and better at what they call low voltage, which is data conduits and stuff like that, where you have this amazing benefit of understanding where the data is going and understanding how to, how, to, how to really put that kind of a system together. But also, if you need to do the power, you're the only one who can do the power. So you have this interesting combination of capabilities. I think that's the sort of thing that is going to get people to say yes to this. That and the fact that you can, you know, you can be 22 and making six figures or close to it with zero debt. And, you know, that sounds all right. So I think that it, interestingly, it could be that this reckoning of, of higher education that you've seen for the last two years yeah. winds up being a better impact for the trades than anything the trades themselves do, because they're trying really hard. I mean, they're, they're really, whether it's unions or associations, folks are trying pretty hard and they're getting out there and talking in, in, in high schools. 
The problem is what, what I hear is when you talk to someone who's 17, they don't, they're too young to get it. So yeah. the benefits of the trade really become clear at like 21 or 22 when you've been living on mom's couch for a little while and, and you know, you either decided not to do university or it wasn't for you. And, and you start to see life, how it really is and, and how rent is a real thing. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I think it's quite a compelling argument. Yeah. And I think you're right too. I think it's interesting to, to kind of add a, 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 this sort of hybrid layer onto some of these careers because frankly, they're just not sexy to the next generation. You know, this, this, so I think you need to have some kind of technology component or some kind of entrepreneurial piece to it to, to kind of be enticing um, to, to this next generation. At least that's sort of what I'm seeing in general with, with the job market. Do you remember not that many years ago, I mean, at least I don't think it was that many years ago, the job of the mechanic started to be talked about. It may not have been that long, or maybe I just noticed it, but people started talking about mechanics as a, as a um, technical skill, not just a mechanical skill. And by that, I mean car mechanics and auto mechanics. But it was, you started hearing people talk about it like, look, you have to understand this you know, diagnostic machine and modern cars have you know, 400 chips in them or whatever. I think you're right. I think that I, I, I'm seeing that happening. And again, that's why the UA and, and, and MCA and MCA in Chicago spend so much time training people on Revit and training them on, on other technologies. It's exactly what you're saying. So what? So what? What would you like to see happen? Like, what would be you know just the the path forward that you know? What do you see the biggest opportunity right now? I mean, BIM data, all all of these things that are that are. Um, becoming more and more useful. What, what's the next big thing that you think could be really earth shattering in the industry? Um, I, yeah, I, I think that industrialized construction is, and, and that's kind of a, the range of things that that can mean. And I, I kind of mean modular where you're rebuilding lots of, lots of the thing and then installing it. I think that that's just beginning to be properly explored. The funding models for how to deal with that, it's just different from what construction companies are used to now. I think that's going to get figured out, especially the bigger ones. They have enough cash flow to, to, to figure it out. What I'd like to see is a, a couple of things come together. Um, one of them is the, the number of, of products and processes that are involved in across the industry is totally unfettered. And as a result, there are too many. There's just too many options for windows and so on and so forth. And that, that, has a, that means everything really is bespoke. It means every time you do a thing, it really is the first time. And there's, you know, you'll hear people that are in the industrialized construction space talk about this a lot is that we need to winnow that down and start making some choices about standardizing around different things. I think that has a couple of benefits. I think it means that you can learn from, from job to job a little bit easier. I think it makes data a lot easier to collect, aggregate and turn into models. Um, I also think it means that you don't always need to have a 20 year veteran doing some of the skilled trades. I think it simplifies what some of the trade job is so you can bring in people who don't have quite that level of experience and get over some of this um some of the, the uh uh you know labor shortages that we have um on the kind of higher end i think that that data standardization will mean that we can grow our own ai models right now nobody is i mean they'll, they'll say they are but I, I don't procore maybe has enough data they can aggregate but most most people don't they're taking models that exist from somewhere else and retraining them which is fine there's nothing wrong with that but I think that you're going to, I think we will find that the, the, certainly the bigger GCs are able to aggregate data across jobs and start to get real AI um, 
that that it gets gets predictive and gets um, helps them to see how to do things better. And and I don't I think that's really hard to do right now. Um, I'm sure they're working on it. It's just the number of data points you need to to grow a real model from scratch is is in a, you know millions. Um, yeah. And to do that in any, with any level of sophistication is daunting. Um, so I, I think that's I'd like to see that happen. It's it's grinding. It's grinding and they have to invest in kinds of people they're not used to, people that are data scientists, people that are, are you know, more about process and, and controls than, than is normally the case in construction. So I think that mind shift is underway. It's just, it'll take a minute. Yeah. So let's go even further into the future. So I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everyone and it's, you know, projecting yourself 20, 25 years into the future you could bring with you, you know, any kind of gadget that would make your life better, or just make you happy. And it doesn't have to be based in reality. What would it be and what would it do? So Elon Musk does a few things. <laughs> One of them that has really kind of got me, I mean, I can't, I can't help but watch everything he, he blows up in South Texas. But that, other than that, the Neuralink thing where, where you're looking at real interfaces with the brain, I think is exciting. I think it's harder than, than people think it is. We, we don't really know how the brain works at that level yet. I think we're gonna find out by poking holes in it and putting, putting wires in. The idea of being able to um, experience that level of, and I don't expect it to be like the matrix. I think, who knows, that might be easier than we think because it's just the optic nerve, I have no idea. But, but my point is being able to expand your mental capacity by offloading the things that humans aren't good at, like, you know, working memory or, you know, remem remembering to turn the lights off. So, you know, things that computers are fantastic at, being able to augment that and have that on tap would be pretty cool. I mean, that's the geek in me talking, but, you know, and the video games would be insane. <laughs> I love that. I listen, and I tell people that I'm, you know, I'll be first in line, like plug me into the mainframe. I'm super happy. And most people are absolutely appalled by that. So I'm glad I have a compatriot That's right. in, in the augmenting, because uh, I look at it as augmenting humanity. I agree with you. We can text each other mentally. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> We're doing it right now. That's right. Uh, uh, Hugh, it's been an absolute pleasure as always talking to you. And uh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This has been great.